If you have uh, been with us for this, this series, um, you're aware probably that, that we've heard quite a bit about water. In fact, water, as, as a symbolic image, is brought up in every chapter, or the idea of it, in every chapter thus far. It's kind of the main symbolic image thus far in John. In chapter 1, Jesus is portrayed as the, the true baptizer. And that's a, that's a water image, but his baptism brings the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, Jesus at the wedding of Cana turns water into wine. Water that is held in the purification jars that represent the whole Old Testament purification system. He fills them full with his new wine of the Messianic age. In chapter 3, he explains to Nicodemus, this religious Jewish religious leader, that he must be born of water and the Spirit, these cleansing imagery of what Jesus is going to bring. In chapter 4, Jesus offers a woman at a well living water, his living water, which will bubble up to eternal life. In every case, in every chapter so far, he is the true cleansing water of life. And now as we come to chapter 5, we find Jesus, the living, purifying water of God, standing before the legendary healing waters of Bethesda. It's kind of a, a showdown. It's no contest, but it's kind of a showdown. Now our text is composed of two main scenes. Scene 1, verses uh, 1 to 9, is the healing at the water's edge. And scene 2, verses 10 to 17, is the response of the religious leaders. So let's, let's read a first uh, few verses of scene 1. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus has returned to Jerusalem on the occasion of, of a Jewish feast, we're not sure which one, and upon entering, he's come to a pool. Actually, uh, according to recent excavations, it's, it's two pools, which fits with the, the Aramaic term there, Bethesdathane, which means the place of twin outpouring. So there's these two springs, which have created these two pools. In fact, they had built pools around them. When I was in Jerusalem, you can go there. They've excavated them. You can actually walk down. They're not full of water right now, so you can walk down in them, and they've, they've put back up some of the colonnades. And there's five colonnades because there's four around the outside, these covered porticos, and then there's one down the middle between the two pools. Now, apparently, these, uh, these springs occasionally, as springs do, would surge there would be kind of a pressure release, and they would bubble, and the waters would be stirred. And the legend was that if you were uh, the first one into the waters during such a surge, you could be healed of anything. And it was a pretty strong legend. In fact, later manuscripts of, of the Bibles even have this kind of spurious explanation that it was an angel of the Lord that stirred the waters 
Most scholars realize they're not in the original, so they've been removed. But it was such a strong legend that it kind of worked its way into the scriptures for a time. So you can imagine the scene around these, these pools. Every infirmed or disabled person that could get there, probably from hundreds of miles around, would try to get there to these pools. Their families would bring them, the blind, the lame, the disfigured, the disease, packed together underneath these porticos, probably detritus. When I was there, it was super hot. I can imagine them all trying to get into the shade. But they're trying to be around the edge of this pool. This whole family's probably encamped there. And it's not a happy, happy healthy scene, right? Imagine the sounds of people in pain and suffering. You imagine the, the, the smells and the, and, and the cries and, and people packed together. And these people aren't there to, hey, we're come to drink some of the water and leave and go home and see if we're, we're healed. No, they're waiting hours upon hours, day after day, not daring to get away from the edge of that pool or even look away lest they miss the waters being stirred and they're not the first one in. Pretty desperate, pathetic scene. It's hard for us to imagine such strong kind of superstition. It seems a bit primitive maybe to our kind of modern rationalistic minds, but if you think about it, we're not far from it at all. All you have to do is go online and uh, Google healing waters, and you will get quite a few hits, some really interesting ones. There's a place uh, in Lourdes, France, a little town in the mountains, and they have a spring there. It's a town of about 17,000 from what I understand, but they have 6 million visitors a year to that spring because in 1958, a young girl had a vision of Mary that said she would be healed, and, and apparently she must have been healed because everybody goes there to those waters. In fact, you can have a bottle of that water sent to your house. It's 125 bucks. Well, it was back a few years ago. Uh, Lakote, Mexico, the well of Jesus Klecken, 1991, his dog was, was healed. His dog was drinking from the water, a very sick dog, and it got better, and people started coming along. Now there's about 5,000 visitors a day, and it's claimed to have healed all kinds of things. You can go to Dusseldorf, Germany. There's a healing spring there. You can go to Nadanya, India. You can go to Bear Lake, Minnesota. They've got a healing waters spring that thousands of people go to. You see, desperation and helplessness in the face of deliberate, or I should say debilitating illness, and a willingness to try anything, even cling to superstition to be healed, is timeless. People are no different today. Now at this point, you may be thinking that the, the application of this text is a bit limited if I'm not struggling with some disease or, or, or something that I need to be healed from, I mean, is this really for me? I'm not like this guy. I'm fine. Well, as we read on in the text, it focuses in on, on this one guy, as I said, and I think the connection to us starts to become a little clearer. So look at verse 5 with me. 
One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Here's a man who, who's completely helpless. He's been an invalid for 38 years, probably most of his life. Maybe as a teenager, he was able to get there to these pools in some way. He says that, you know, he's been at the water quite a long time. Apparently, he's not the quickest when the water is stirred. He's an invalid in some way where he can't get down to the waters on his own, and there's nobody there to help him. A lot of people have family members that are there with them to push them into the water. Wealthy people could hire somebody to kind of be a water watcher and push them in at the right time. He can't get in there first, so he's been there. Think how frustrating that would be. But what ties him to us is why he's there, why he's in this situation in the first place. We find that out actually in scene two later when they're dialoguing. Jesus says something to him that gives us a little insight that's important. Look at verse 14 of our text with me. Let's see here, John 5, verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is huge. Uh, You know, we're now getting an insight from the physical to kind of the spiritual, right? This man's condition is being directly connected to his sinfulness. His suffering is connected to his specific sin. We see this at a different level. There's there's a connection. Now, I want to be careful here. This text is specifically about him and his sin and his condition. It's not saying that all people who are sick or have a disease, that it comes specifically from a a sin specifically in their life. We know this from John chapter 9, verse 3, where Jesus walks by a, a blind man and the disciples say, hey, what sin did he do or his parents that he is blind like that? And Jesus says, neither of them sinned. It's not about that. But what this text does remind us of is that sin, all our sin, Sin in general, the sin of the world, the sin in us, is the ultimate cause of all sickness and suffering and death. There is a connection. Genesis 3 makes it very clear that it's because we have been separated from our God, our Creator, due to the rebellion and sin of all of us, that we are under God's curse and kind of like a plant cut off from its water source, we're cut off from our source of life, and suffering and death has come into this world. We all have this terminal sickness in our souls that oozes into our physicality. 
So with that in mind, we, we come back and we reflect on this scene and we see that this man's physical situation is reflective, I think even symbolic, of all humanity's spiritual condition. Like many of these stories in John, these physical pictures and healings and a spiritual teaching. You see, without Jesus' intervention, without the, the living water healer, Jesus himself, who dealt with our sin at the cross and brought us cleansing and healing, without him, we are spiritually like this man. We can look at this man and see a picture of ourselves spiritually as he sits there year after year, completely helpless, crippled by his own doing, and all the while pinning his hopes on useless superstition. Outside of Jesus, we have crippled souls headed for destruction, and we're completely helpless to do anything to help ourselves. The word used here of this man, the word invalid here, interesting Greek word, actually means without strength, powerless. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans 5, 6 to describe all of us. While we were yet sinners, powerless, invalids before God, Christ came and died for us. I think it's important to ask this question, do you you know this? If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, if you haven't received his forgiveness and cleansing, his healing, you are spiritually an invalid, crippled by your sin, withering away to death physically, and you're powerless to help yourself. And all superstitious faith is useless. It's desperate, flailing. It'll get you nowhere. And you know what? There is a lot of superstitious faith out there. I once met a lady who was quite honest about her spiritual struggle. She seemed to be in touch with her soul's paralysis, but her, her answer was faith in, her, in herself, or perhaps kind of faith in, in faith. She had a lot of crystals that she wore, and she had this little tripod pyramid thing with a crystal at the top over this lounge chair in her living room that she could meditate under. She talked about taking journeys into herself for healing. The problem is when you go inside yourself, your polluted self, you just find more of yourself. A self that can't deal with sin and, and, and how it separated us from our holy God and put us under his judgment. I once met a guy who had just joined the Church of Scientology and he was leaving his family in the Midwest and heading to Hollywood to be part of the church there because they had these cleansing rituals where you could sweat out your impurities. He told me all about it. That's how he was going to deal with his impurities, his, his sin. Again, these can't pay for your sin. They can't deal with our holy God. They're useless. I've met people who pray to their ancestors for healing and deliverance. I've met people who say that later when they, when they die and, they, and, they're, and they're in some place of, of holding their, ancestors, their, their, their family back in life, will pray for them and pray them in. The problem is all those people 
are kind of like all the people around the pool with that guy. They're all in the same condition. They can't help him into the pool. They can't get healed because they can't heal themselves, much less him. My friends, the only faith worth relying on is faith in the one who can actually do something about it. The one who says to this man, verse 8, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Imagine that scene for a minute. If that man had been there for many years, and of course he had, we know that from the text, because he doesn't have anybody to put him in the water, he didn't have a chance. Think about him. Crippled, 38 years, muscles atrophied, bruises all over him from laying on that rocky ground. And now he is standing up, carrying his mat completely restored. Everybody would know who he was. Everybody around those pools. I've been there. It's not that big. If you're there for years, you're going to know every face there. I'll bet you people started diving and jumping into the water immediately. When they saw him, they thought they missed a stirring. What an incredible healing. You won't see healings like, you watch all the faith healing shows on TV, right? It's always like arthritis or headaches. or You don't see an atrophied body and muscles suddenly full, standing up erect, holding up. He's holding up his, his mat, his bed. From 38 years of paralysis to full, healthy, living individual. See, it's a picture for us. Jesus has the same power to heal our pathetic, crippled souls. This is why later, and we'll see it next week in verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, this is the truth. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He can promise that. Because he can tell you to get up. Jesus can heal your soul because he can deal with your sin. And to believe this is not superstition. Because he proved it. Not only did he prove it here, but he proves it when he goes to the cross and then raises from the dead. At the cross he took on all our sin, all our death, all our punishment as he promised. And then he rose from the dead offering new life, living Water, spiritual healing for all crippled souls. So there's really only one question for all of us from this text. It's the question that we saw in verse 6 of the text. Jesus says, let me go back to it. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That's the question. Now in the context here, in this physical situation, it is an obvious, yes, of course he does. That's why he's there. But unfortunately, spiritually, it's not an obvious yes for a lot of people. 
They don't see their condition spiritually. They don't see themselves like this man. We see this, and we see an obvious example of this in, in the rest of the story, in, in, in scene two, in the response of the religious. Look at verse nine with me. And at once he was healed. Now, that day was the Sabbath. It's kind of 9a, that first paragraph. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your mat. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now skip down to verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's incredible, isn't it? You think the miracle is incredible and shocking? This response is shocking. This pathetic invalid has been miraculously restored to full health. He's probably jumping for joy, running in circles. And the Jewish leaders, what do they say? What do they think? They say, what are you carrying your bed for? It's the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. It's amazing. Why no recognition of his healing? Why aren't they joyous for him? Why no interest in, in the healer in, in a positive way? Who is this man? Why is there only condemnation? Well, I think it's because they are caught in the most insidious superstition of them all. You know what that is? It's religion. Rules religion. You see, God had indeed called the Jews to observe the Sabbath. It's, it's part of the law. But it was to serve them as a day of rest, wasn't it? But over time, they had twisted keeping the Sabbath into a work through which they could try to earn God's favor, kind of earn his healing by their efforts. In fact, they had made it into a day of many works. See, it's interesting, there's actually nothing in the law of God forbidding carrying your mat on the Sabbath. They couldn't point to a scripture that said you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. That restriction was the last of 39 Sabbath regulations listed in the traditions of the elders. They had made this up. They had made up a lot of regulations and rules. You couldn't spit on the Sabbath. Well, you could if you hit a rock. If it hit the dirt, it was fertilizing the ground, that was work. You're breaking the Sabbath. Couldn't look in a mirror because you might be tempted to pull gray hairs. They thought that would be a good rule, just no looking in mirrors. You weren't supposed to wear your false teeth because they might fall out of your mouth and you'd have to pick them up. That would be work. Um, you couldn't carry a handkerchief. You could wear it around you, but you could not carry it because that's work. They had all kinds of little rules. It, it, it's a rules religion that somehow superstitiously will kind of heal them, right? And their rules, we read and think, that's crazy. 
But really, you know what the truth is? They're just different rules than ours. The truth is, this is our superstition, rules religion. This is us. This is what we do. We may laugh at, at the person who believes in you know, healing waters and, and crystals, but we can't laugh at this. This is our superstition. Just go out in the streets, ask anybody. I don't care whether they consider themselves a religious person or not. Ask them if they were to die and stand before God, why should he let them into their heaven, and his heaven? You know what he'll say? What they'll say? I don't care who they are. They'll start telling you, well, you know, I've been a, I've been a, I've been a good person. I, I, I go to church. I try to obey the commandments. I, I don't steal. I've never murdered anybody. They just start checking off the things that, that they've done, the rules they followed, supposedly. And of course, there are say, it's always like, well, I'm not as bad. There's always a comparison thing going on. It's our default mode, the idea that we can earn God's favor, kind of earn his healing by, by making uh, our, our best efforts to keep some standards and somehow in doing these things, it'll balance out against our sins. It's a superstition. It's a magical superstition because it ignores the very nature of our sinful condition, how we have a crippled soul that's separated from our holy God. Doing works and keeping rules can never deal with that. It's like slapping paint and tires on a car with a bad engine. It's really no more effective in dealing with our sin than than a mail-order bottle of healing water is for treating cancer. It does nothing. But it's a very dangerous superstition because it kind of works for us. It makes sense for us. We, we kind of go, well, yeah, any good thing, you have to earn it. You have to work for it. And it gives us a sense of control. I can do it. Here are the rules. I can fix this. Let me check off these things I do. I, I, I can do this and I can make myself better. And of course, this sense of control fosters a denial of our, our true condition. A denial that we are completely helpless, spiritual invalids, that we can't do anything. A denial in such a way that we can stand before the, the living, healing water of God himself the true healer, Jesus, we can stand there with crippled souls just like these religious leaders and reject him. It's, it's pathetic. And it's crazy. Their response to Jesus, the religious leaders, here's kind of the spiritual equivalent of, of this invalid who's, who's by the water when Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to be healed? Saying, no, I got it. I'm good. I'm fine. Don't insult me. But we do this. We get caught in religious rules, superstition thinking all the time. I think we do it uh, when we look down on fellow Christians who don't seem to have it as together as us because they struggle with some sins that aren't issues for us and we kind of doubt their salvation, that, that's religious superstition. We do it when we set rules and 
personal boundaries beyond what the scriptures require. That's fine for us, but then we hold others to them and judge them by them. That's religious superstition. We do it when we get down on ourselves as we fail to keep certain standards in our life and we want to give up on Christianity because it's not working for us. People say that to me. I tried Christianity. It just didn't work. I couldn't do it. It's because they're making it a religious superstition. Yeah, you can't do it. That's why Jesus died. To put it another way, we do it when we fall into thinking that God only loves us when we're doing well at following the rules. It's religious superstition, and it pushes away the true healer. Who's healed in this story? Who's made well? Well, it's not the religious elite with all their laws and rules. It's the desperate cripple who's painfully aware of his need, who knows he can't do anything to help himself, who says yes to Jesus, and Jesus says, get up. That's what he's going to say to every single one of us. We're going to see it in the next section next week. So the question again for all of us is simply, do you want to be healed? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've brought the true, living, healing waters in your Son. We thank you that we have a real hope in the one who has conquered death and risen from the dead. The one who can bring us all to up before you for eternal life. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Praise and thanksgiving that Jesus has finished the work of our salvation on the cross. Thank you, Lord. Mm -hmm.